0: Good evening, everyone. Um, thanks for making an effort to be here. It's great to see you all here. Um, tonight's lecture is the first in a series of lectures um, that represents a research group at the LSE called Psychoanalysis at LSE. Psychoanalysis at LSE is a, a multidisciplinary research group with, largely based in social psychology with expertise from a number of different disciplines. Um, let me introduce quickly some of our speakers tonight and uh, then I'll give you a little bit of context about how we'll go ahead. Um, Renata Seleckel, on my left, is um, in the law department at LSE. She's a centennial professor, and um, she's a psychoanalytic theorist. In the middle is Anthony Gormley, who needs no introduction. He's the artist, and he will be speaking a little bit about his work tonight. Uh, on the far left is Darian Leder, who's a psychoanalyst and author. What we're really wanting to talk about tonight is the, the topic of public space and the body. Um, instead of having a kind of uh, overly formalized presentation, what we'll do is we'll follow the route of a debate um, or a dialogue. And I think what we'll do is we'll start with Darian, um, and then perhaps Anthony will say a few words, and then Renata will say a few words as well. We'll speak for about an hour, and then hopefully that'll leave us about half an hour's time for conversation and, and questions from the floor. Okay, so perhaps we should start with a uh, brief round of applause for the speakers.
1: Okay, so um, thank you all for coming this evening, and it's a great pleasure to be um, in dialogue with Anthony Gormley. Just a very brief word about the links between Anthony Gormley and psychoanalysis. Um, As the evening progresses, I'm sure we'll have more time to go into conceptual questions about space, the body, and perhaps some analytic ideas about those things. But just to say that Anthony is someone who is really a well-known figure in the analytic world, not just in the, the public sphere and in the art world. But very often, you see Anthony going to lectures on psychoanalysis on a Saturday morning in Mallet Street, and he'll engage in the discussion. And he's someone who's always open to analytic ideas and with the w- encouraging a dialogue between traditions in art theory and art history and psychoanalysis, he's also often seen at parties in the psychoanalytic world. So he's a kind of feature not only of the art world but also of the analytic world. And I guess it, that might not be common knowledge for the people here that have so far avoided the analytic world. So just a brief note to indicate Anthony's engagement with psychoanalysis... Now I think Renata is going to say a few words about her experience of Anthony's work and raise some questions that we might have time to look at later this evening. Renata.
2: Yeah,
3: thank you, thank you very much. Um, when I observed Anthony's work, two things came into my mind. Uh, first is anxiety, uh, an uneasiness, some kind of a question that is posed back to me as an observer. And second, it was um, a question of how we organize our perception of reality and of ourselves. in psychoanalysis, and in particular in psychoanalysis which comes out of work of French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. Um, we know that uh, we organize as human beings our perception of reality through some kind of a fantasy frame. Our perception of everything around us is usually created in a kind of a scenario way, a story with which we create always temporary, kind of shaky idea of wholeness, of consistency. And with the help of fantasy, we also create a story about our own identity, um, wholeness, consistency, again which is a very shaky structure, easily undermined. Now, in psychosis, we also know that sometimes people get quite a haunting feeling when they have a perception as if the reality is gazing back at them. That sometimes happens in cases of psychosis, when a psychotic feels as if the picture is observing him or that there in the picture is a gaze, a haunting gaze or a voice, a penetrating voice which is talking directly to him. From Freud, we know about uh, the case of Justice Schreiber, who felt as if God was directly talking to him and was in a way in this relationship with God uh, changing his body. So Schreiber felt as if he suddenly, because of this particular relationship, started turning into a woman. So his psychosis, for example, had to do with a particular kind of depersonalization. So if psychoanalysis understands our view of the world as being, you know, quite traumatic and, you know, it can easily change, these fantasies can also be easily undermined and it can be quite painful when they collapse, nonetheless in today's ideology we have a perception that the world can be rationally organized quite often the ideology of rational choice, which sort of is part of economic theory, comes to other fields of thought. And, you know, even in self-help books that are all around us, we get an impression that we can control our own emotions, environment, especially manipulate other people's emotions, that there is also kind of a rational way to get certainty about our existence. And precisely this search for certainty Seems to be so important in times when we speak that we live with quite a lot of anxiety, with a lot of uncertainty in regard to the sphere around us, society, and a lot of uncertainty about our own well being. Now, Anthony's work, I think, precisely opens up the sort of a possibility to think through these uncertainties. And this work also allows us to experience some anxiety which dominant ideology also perceives as something that we should get rid of. Not only that we are constantly offered new drugs to appease anxiety, it appears that this rational choice theory, the reasoning that we can control our emotions, that with positive thinking we can even heal ourselves and so on, it looks that this reasoning too tries in a way to get rid of anxiety. Now, we know from Kierkegaard on that anxiety is an essential human condition, which has to do with the possibility of possibility, with the fact that the subject is, in a way, free. Now, Sartre said that this anxiety has to do that when I'm standing in front of the abyss, I'm not afraid that I will fall. I'm afraid that I have the power to throw myself into the abyss. Anxiety, therefore, seems to be something almost prohibited in today's ideology, although it's, you know, on the other way, ever present. Anthony's work, for me, reintroduces anxiety as this kind of an essential human uh, thing. We know that animals have fear, but humans have anxiety, which means an anxiety towards something that is completely invisible, something that does, we cannot really pinpoint. As you know, in the moment of fear, we can say, I'm afraid of dark places or barking dogs, but with anxiety, we often feel that there is no object. Now, when I observed Anthony's work myself, I myself experienced this anxiety and I questioned the feeling. And a particular kind of anxiety happened when I entered the project called Blind Light. This was the glass room full of uh, vapor, uh, you know, incredibly hard to navigate way through, and scary also from the outside, because it looked like an empty hole, something that is seductive and horrifying at the same time. My experience when I entered that space was I was searching for some kind of certainty. I was searching for transparency. I was searching for order. I was questioning how can I get out of this room. As soon as I found a way to touch the glass, I sort of found some logic following the glass probably will bring me out. So safety, insecurity, being lost in that space was my experience. And anxiety that other people, and I read about this on the internet when people were debating their experience in this room, they were saying that they were feeling as if the room might invade them in some way when they were observing the room from the outside seeing this white kind of cloud inside. Some people wrote that they were afraid that this will haunt them, that this white cloud somehow will break through the glass and sort of become overwhelmingly present everywhere. Other people felt as if entering into this room is kind of entering into some kind of a monstrous uh, space. Still others were afraid of people they encountered in this space. Suddenly a human voice uh, or just sheer fear that another human is present somewhere but you cannot see him created a lot of anxiety. I was sort of curious how people also observed anxiety related to other parts of this last exhibition by uh, Anthony uh, in the Hayward Gallery and curiously I saw so many different types of anxious responses to the figures which were placed uh, to the uh, buildings around Hayward Gallery so some people (laughs) create sorry we have our fourth participant uh, on the panel, Susie Orbach. She is visiting professor at the LSE, a very well-known psychoanalyst, and also a member of our core group, Psychoanalysis at LSE. And, of course, she's late because of London traffic, <laughs> as everyone knows. So welcome, Susie. Uh, so the anxiety that people uh, reported about when they were observing the figure was also incredibly interesting. Some people immediately felt that they need to see all the figures they were, that were around. They needed to be in control about the space. Other people felt as if they are observed from those figures. So some people claimed as if they felt that there was an eye you know, observing them, a kind of a, you know, Orwell's uh, 84, realized in London. Now, still other people had a feeling, a desire to rescue those figures, and that's why some viewers reported that their first thought was that someone is trying to, make, to commit suicide, that someone, you know, as I said before, is free to sort of jump <laughs> down into the abyss. Now, most of the people also said that they felt some kind of a feeling of vulnerability, these little sort of bodies so high up, who looked small and lonely. Now, one uh, observer had a particular fear, which I found especially interesting. He was worried what will happen with those figures when the exhibition ends. So he questioned whether these figures will end up in some person's garden, or whether they will be maybe dressed up and create a party. Now, this conclusion was not so unusual. A couple of years ago, an Austrian artist by the name Peter Arnold decided to do a very particular meeting of Nippemuks. These are figures of saints which are in Austria usually placed on the bridges, So he got the permission from some committee that takes care of those uh, saints to borrow the saints for one day to bring, you know, dozens of them to Linz so that they can meet for one day. His idea was that they must have had, you know, hundreds of years of this solitary existence. I'm sure that they were incredibly <laughs> happy about this, but nonetheless, <laughs> I think that the response that we get in regard to anthony 's work about this vulnerability, loneliness and, and the desire to rescue, really opens up you know this point I would like to, with which I would like to conclude that anthony 's work, which in some way introduces a certain anxiety which also Ask us to question, in a way, our own embodiment and our sort of body in the space, our perception of the outside and the perception of the reality of us, in a strange way opens some kind of a space of a new community of empathy, the community of people who, for example, observe together the figures and start talking randomly on the streets, or even the community on the Internet which is debating, you know, what will happen with the figures Once they are taken away. Uh, That's a a short introduction I will make to Anthony, and I will be delighted to hear his responses.
4: Renata, thank you very much. Uh, I have to I have to ask the simple question: How many of you have saw Blind Light, the show? Oh, great! That's a that's a good third. Um, So we won't be talking to, um, as it were, the uninitiated. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Um, I have to say that since anxiety seems to be the focus of our discussion tonight, I'm very anxious. Uh, And I'm particularly anxious because, I mean, this is the fear that all artists have, that in some way they're going to be uh, shrunk and their deepest motivations are somehow going to be revealed. But this is going to happen in public, perhaps, tonight. so I'm going to be playing a double game, probably. Um, I'm aware that at the moment, uh, you know, my show is off, but Louise Bourgeois' show is on at uh, Tate Modern. I haven't been to it, but she says somewhere along the line that somehow uh, art is the thing that keeps me sane. I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of conclusions to be drawn from that simple statement I think for a start it's a lie uh, I'm not sure that there is as it were catharsis through the sharing of anxiety I would say that my work comes from anxiety it, it comes from a deep sense of uncertainty about uh, my place in the world who I am uh, the answer to all those fundamental questions of where I might have come from, where I might be going to. Um, And I think that one of the ways that my work works is not by actually relieving anxiety, but by amplifying it and by infecting others with it. And the notion of infection runs along with the notion of multiplication or uh, in a way trying to through exposing my own uncertainty about where I might or might not fit anywhere um, that somehow uh, it's not that I decrease my sense of uh, I think Uh, nervous uh, on-edgeness that I think has been kind of with me really for as long as I can remember but I've learnt in a way through making these objective carriers of that sense of uncertainty I have learnt to love my uncertainty if you like Um, and I regard it not as an affliction but as an extraordinary engine for a certain kind of of sensitivity. I think that there is a sense in which anxiety is is a form of pain that the dream of Western progress thinks that it can cure us of. But actually it is a product of that very process of in a way, uh, our marriage to empirical engines. And I think that it is actually a survival, for me it's a survival mechanism. So uh, the the necessary rising of, in a way, depression and uh, a concomitant uh, displays, symptoms of anxiety, us, uh, are a correct a correcting survival mechanism for the fact that we are living in higher and higher concentrations with a greater and greater awareness of the implications of our lives on an existing uh, planetary system now I don't know there are lots of things that I could say in, in, in response to Renata's very beautifully uh, thought out um, appraisal really of her own position in relation to the work. I, I think I just want to talk about one or two. One is the the picture that looks back. One of the ways in which I think art has been appropriated in the Western world is that it that it in fact reinforces a symbolic order. And this is the kind of of thing. Uh, that I think Slavoj Zizek uh, deals with when he talks about trying to escape from that that film might be a way of trying to escape from a symbolic order I think that that, that I, I am concerned not to use my work as a reinforcement of representation in a sense that is the story of modernity modernism, the story of art in the 20th century is that art liberated itself by looking deeply into its own internal formal structure from, in a way, that duty of representing commonly held, in a way, myths, whether those are religious or political, and began to find out what its internal necessities were. Now, curiously, that that became a failed project, in my view, because if you think of the work of Mondrian or, or Brancusi or uh, any of the great pioneers of, of modernism, in a sense their work never achie- or has not achieved now that aspiration to be, in a way, common to all, irrespective of sex, race, language, Um, but have become icons in in a way another myth, which is the myth of modernity. And they've been, in a way, appropriated and institutionalized. So one of the things that I'm trying to do with the work, both in terms of the way that perhaps my my exhibition in the Haywood was on the one hand a concentration chamber in which we find, curiously, the elemental and external world Internalized in blind light that Renata has so powerfully talked about, but also the infection of the space around this cultural concentration chamber in order to, in some way, provoke an idea that that art should return. The freedoms that it gained for itself back to the to the viewer, and I would say that I'm, you know, I have moved now from trying to make I think unsuccessfully. I would say that probably you know the first 20 years of my work was unsuccessful even on its own terms because people could not could not look at these body cases as I. I, I term them a Nazi statues and as statues they were failures because they uh, represented no one in particular they were not part of any narrative they uh, they didn't do anything they were, they, they were uh, u- useless uh, if you were looking for the beauty the heroism the sexuality the kind of idealized sexuality of a a statue because so far as I was concerned what they were were not objects that attempted to represent they were simply indexical vehicles to declare a subjective space in space at large where a particular body once had been and and by implication, by empathy, anybody <coughs> could could be. But people didn't take that invitation, so far as they were concerned. I think that the, the, you know, for the majority of viewers, the lead body case works were simply dummies uh, that were not performative. So, the 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 shift in my work came with with field, which I don't know how many of you. How many of you know what I'm talking about with field? Okay, very few people. It's, it's, it's basically the, the filling of an architectural space with up to, <coughs> in one case, 210,000 small sculptures to the point where the architectural space is entirely, entirely occupied. And you can only see the work through a threshold. These are hand-sized uh, possible beings that are simply lumps of clay with two holes for eyes but they all face the front and your access to the space that they are in is only through a pre-existing doorway uh, in, in the biggest installation which was in Shanghai uh, three years ago in an old steel factory it was about uh, 80,000 square feet uh, that this field of gazes occupied and as a viewer you unwittingly became aware that you had walked onto as it were a stage where the normal relationships between observer and observed were reversed and it was the art that looked back at you. Uh, in a way this is an illustration of this uncanny sense of in a way uh, the the normality, the order of Exchange between viewer and object was reversed ever since making that work. I have tried to feed into my work the implications of it and blind light uh, which is a chamber eleven meters by nine and a half meters by three and a meter uh, three and a half meters high filled at one and a half atmospheres of pressure with seven thousand lux of light and uh, a density of purified water vapour such that if you hold your hand out in front of you you can't see it it's a chamber that uses the architectural equivalent of high modernism Uh, say think of Mies van der Rohe's Barcelona pavilion that promises transparency that promises a fluid relation between internality and externality and subvert that it's full of light but the light is totally blinding you, you move across an open threshold that is perfectly open is always open out of which this vapor is spilling and you disappear not only to others but to yourself And you go into a zone where all of the normal, in a way, orientation mechanisms that we use to be certain about ourselves as free individuals in space are taken away. And within three or four steps, uh, people experience usually quite high levels of paranoia, anxiety, which might then, if they persist... Some people have to leave immediately. Some people have coughing fits. Some people have to hold somebody. If they if they persist, they, that initial feeling of anxiety and and uh, in a way very very strong kind of paranoia reaction it might be followed by a, a sense of euphoria. The there are two the reason that I told you as it were that. The the material physics of this is that I think uh, there are two aspects uh, that are important. One is that this is a work in some senses which makes the viewer into the viewed both for themselves and for others. And you could say, like Ralph Rugoff did, the director of the Hayward, what, you know, where's the sculpture? Where's the art in this? There's a very good question there. In a way, it is, it is the end of the object nature of, of, of art. But on another level, it's actually the reinforcement of a certain, uh, form of objectness, but it, 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 it returns it to the viewer. And the experience of going into this space, which, is, which does two very distinct things one is it makes seamless an experience of proprioception in other words consciousness is released released from a uh, well a sense of being visually in contact with your own body and being more in a way in tune with its internal condition but that is continuous with its context and it's a very very strange thing it's a very strange and i believe quite liberating experience to in a way be be a mind that is uh without without limit even though you know from the outside this room has very precise uh geometric uh, and measurable uh dimensions and the other within it you meet others and the fear of the other or the pleasure of the other in a in a in a sense when you are lost in this world in which what is you and what is not you is uncertain to have realized out of this medium a body that is both a representation and a real person is can be both comforting and very disturbing. Um, But where does this take us? um, There are no conclusions I think. Uh, For me now I think that we we in a way need art not as it seems to be becoming in terms of the market uh, an object of talismanic exchange but as a space in which we can, in a way, uh, familiarize ourselves uh, with uh, the incommensurable, the unknowable, the unseeable, and in some senses um, escape from uh, the dominance of symbolic orders. But anyway, um, that's my uh, reply to Renato, but we, we can carry on this discussion.
1: <coughs>
2: Anthony, apologies, and apologies to everybody. Um, I'm not really sure how to come in here, but because I'm no longer chairing. Um, oh, you can chair. No, no. no. i just started chairing. <laughs> but I, I suppose I want to say something given... Well, I want to ask something, given your your remarks about blind light, because I've just been writing about it. it's what it meant to me, and I know you don't wish to be shrunk in public. <laughs> but um, I think, for a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, there's a different way of looking at the relationship between the viewer and the viewed, and and what you're doing and what our experience is. So if I try to think, or if I take myself back to entering into that space, which I on many different occasions with different sized people from my daughter to um, somebody of my own age and many strangers. I felt that what you communicated to me or what you offered me through if you want to call it your anxiety was something really quite transformative. And in the therapy relationship the analyst would call the emotional experience that they have with when they are with an analisande they would term that the countertransference so let me say what the countertransference or what my feelings were in relation to your work because maybe it's another way to think about it and I know my colleagues are not so into countertransference but that's okay that, you know, that's fine. so my experience of it was that you allowed me as the participant in this event to recognize something that is absolutely there all the time but which is too painful to experience, which is how destabilized our bodies are. So that, And I say this as a woman who's done a lot of work on the body and gender and the impossibility of women having bodies and how bodies are constructed in culture so for me there was something at a very visceral level about woo You know, there's something really scary going on here there's something to be disturbed and to be destabilized Anthony is telling me or giving me the opportunity to experience something about the frailty the fragmentary nature the the, about, about the impossibility of having a body. That's what it felt like to me. It sounds probably quite mad to you, but that's what it gave to me. And it was in kind of sharp distinction, emotionally, to all the statues, or the it's not statues, because that's not how I experienced them, all these people that I absolutely loved all over London, who I wanted to embrace. And... Um, I had a lot of delight traipsing around looking for you and um, really wanting to hug you and feeling very frustrated that I could only touch the ones on Waterloo, the, on Waterloo Bridge. So I felt that for me what you were saying is these are two propositions. This, all of these bodies that are around are about the possibility of our bodies being all right and bodies being bodies needing to relate to other bodies. At the other end was this horror of the impossibility of having any kind of surety or experience of stability. And for that, I was quite (coughs) grateful because I think that um, most of the forces that destabilize the body are so taken for granted that people don't even recognize them. And you forced us to recognize it in that experience. So... That's giving you my counter-transference to your work, and I don't know whether it says anything to you, or if it's of any use.
4: I don't know. You know, the, the 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 question for me is: to what extent do we feel that we own our bodies? And I think that's an allusion. You know, it, the, the, we call it my body, but. I mean to what extent is it ours and to what extent is does it have its own agenda? To what extent are we simply passengers within this material uh, in a way process that with the rise of cancer in a way um, is increasingly clearly um destable. Uh, and I guess you know, for me, you know, that could be the, that could be the cause of anxiety, or it could be the cause of a huge um, relief, once you realise that. And and I think part of my part of my feeling about uh, blind light was that actually, in that soup, the possibility of realising that the fact that we had consciousness that we're attached. Happened to be attached to this particular, uh, as it were, um, destabilized body uh, that was moving around as if in Brownian motion, um, was not was not was not a, a certainty. I mean, you know, so the the detachment, you know, for me it was very important that detachment of consciousness from, in a way, the the physical reinforcement of being able to to see and know uh, the body that was carrying it I don't know about the other um, you know the event horizon event horizon for me was about exposing uh, a if you like uh, a a stand in I mean, exp- exposing the body that architecture should protect to the elements and thereby asking what is the relationship between mind body body building and to do it in a way that was re- reflexive so that the, the, the you know you, your daughter like asking you, you know, let's let you know have you seen that one or let's go and find some more um, is the first kind of part of the intrigue of the relationship, but then the final realization is that all of these all of these bodies are actually concentrated on one spot, and when you go out on the north uh Sculpture Court of the of the Hayward Gallery to realise that you're at the epicentre of if you like a field of gazes that is that is a, a kind of recovery of the idea of of, of field and that actually you realise that at that point I think there should be some form of transfer that that the subject is not out, out there in those mm-hmm. uh, in a way surrogate bodies but is in in you.
1: Um, that say something which perhaps takes up some of those points. It was interesting when Anthony's show opened at the Hayward we had a shrink conference at about the same time and a lot of people came from abroad to that and at one point we had to take them in a bus along the South Bank and some of them had come from Latin America Australia and they didn't know about Anthony's show yet they started to see these figures perched on the top of tall buildings and when they realised that they were figures rather than animate beings they immediately understood them as being representations of someone about to jump and it was interesting at the time the kind of unanimous verdict of this busload of people, given the fact that the press most of the let's say Initial responses to those figures was, you know, a kind of celebration of the individual, the body, and so on, rather than looking at the darker side, someone about to jump, the anonymous office building, and so on. So it shows, in a way, a very, very simple point, how easily our perceptions of the body can change. And Susie talks about the way in which, in analytic practice we're always so close to that fragility where our sense of the body can just collapse. And I think that if you've had the experience of going into blind light, one of the things that's so striking about it is the way that so swiftly we suddenly lose the specular framework of our bodies. We no longer have an other in front of us through whom, through whose image we can coordinate our own image. And suddenly, with no reflection, not just our mirror reflection, but the reflection that other people's body image gives to us, we are plunged into a very, very different space. And as Renato points out, certainly that's a space where some anxiety can emerge. But I think that you can make a contrast between the way in which blind light seems to function in relation to anxiety and the figures in event horizon. They give a kind of spectrum of different ways that human beings can inhabit a body. You can say that one of the things we learn from psychoanalysis is that in order to inhabit a body, we need to be looked at, looked at not necessarily at a conscious level, but unconsciously, we need to have internalized the look of someone else, which is why at certain moments, maybe a romantic breakup or a bereavement, moments when you suddenly lose the look of someone else, there can be a dramatic effect on your own body image. I'll give you a very, very brief example. Um, the guy who brought down Bearings Bank, Nick Leeson, was... Basically, he was working um, in a stockbroking company linked to Bering's Bank. He was inventing clients to preserve the image of a kind of ideal trader to send back to the authority figures at the bank. He was trying to keep up an image for them, which seemed to work very well for a number of years. But the moment, he knew that they knew what he was doing. In other words that they weren't looking at him in the same way that they'd been looking at him before, he was no longer able to recognize his image in the mirror when he was shaving in the morning. So it shows a clear link between our actual sense of living in a body, of inhabiting a body, and the way that we internalize how we want to be seen by someone else. I think that, in a way, the figures of Event Horizon kind of embody that, the point of view of another who's looking at us which is perhaps why they're much less disturbing than blind light the space like blind light and when Renata talks about the experience of anxiety and Anthony how there's this kind of turning point with field which, which is a kind of I haven't seen the the Shanghai field but the other ones I've seen it's an incredibly disturbing experience because you look through <coughs> this frame And all you see are thousands and thousands and thousands of figures with very clearly defined eyes staring back. And you could say that those give the two different experiences of being looked at. There's the look that we internalize that actually gives us a body, let's say represented in something like Event Horizon. And then there's the look which doesn't give us a body, but which takes our body away when we can't subjectivize what we see, where we can't immediately ascribe an identity to all the eyes that are watching us. When we have the sense, for example, we're looking out of a window at something else and we suddenly might have the feeling that beyond an opaque glass, there's something that's looking back at us. And it's interesting that when we have that experience of being looked at in the anxiety-provoking way, it tends to be more and more distant from the actual empirical representation of eyes and the human figure. That The moment it becomes subjectively identifiable, there is this particular person or image looking at me, it becomes more manageable. But when there's just the sense of to be looked at, then things change dramatically. And we could say, you know, It might seem like a rather abstract philosophical debate. But when we think of the fact that in our early years, when we first come into the world, presumably, at a certain level, a central thread of our experience is the fact that we're being looked at and we can't do anything about it. There's something invasive and menacing about the very experience of being looked at, which then becomes subjectivized, a bit more woven into social rituals and fabrics through games like peekaboo, where we link the experience of being looked at to a structure of presence and absence. Now you can see me, now you can't. Here, hold up the screen, get rid of the screen. So at that moment, the kind of threshold of our relation to the visible world, we have two very, very different kinds of experience the experience of a gaze that threatens us, that takes away any coordinates we might have, a gaze linked to anxiety, and the gaze which gives us a body. And I think in Antony's, certainly in the Haywood show, those two poles of that spectrum of our experience of being looked at, illustrated beautifully, so much so that the effect is so sudden When we go into blind light, it's so quick, the way that immediately we're in another dimension, we suddenly are deprived of the coordinates of the specular image that, in a sense, allow us to continue functioning. And just one one final point. Just trying to distinguish the two different threads in the experience of being observed, which, which comes out of Anthony's work, When people talk about, you know, the anxiety of contemporary culture that we're always being looked at, we live in an Orwellian world. Well, really, the Orwellian nature of the contemporary world is the least of our problems. And in a sense, the one thing that's more anxiety-provoking than having a lot of CCTV cameras watching you is not having the CCTV camera is watching you we can complain about that we can be unhappy but it's much more anxiety provoking to be completely deprived of a look that would situate us in the body I think that that's exactly what we find in something like blind light which really brings out that dimension so well
4: That's really good isn't it? <laughs> No, it's interesting. The, the the thing The thing about Event Horizon, I'm I'm not sure that I agree with you about it being uh, less threatening. Because the the thing that I liked, um, and this is in response to both you and to Renata, is that people had this obsession: Have I seen them all? I've got to see them all. I've got to count them. How many? Every, that's all that was the first question everybody wanted to ask. How many of them are there? And have I seen, you know, I better go around. I better go around again and just count them again to make sure I've seen them all. And that was an expression of an anxiety of in a way not knowing quite where they ended. In other words, you could see these, but how many more were there that I didn't see? And actually is there an implication that they go on forever, and actually, this 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 is an objectification of the very thing—the proliferation of, uh, as it were, the big brother eye that is looking everywhere. And that that to me is—I I think that that was very that was very very important. This this the the, the the issue in infection, the idea that there is no clear edge or end to the experience, that the that the, the that the art object is no longer contained by a frame or contained by an institution. In other words, contained by something that makes the cultural experience somehow, well, uh, consumable as an experience. But it, it bleeds into, in a way, everyday life, both in terms of the way we live inside our heads and the way we live in, in in the world. Um, I think the the issue of of um, visibility and our need, in a sense, to be seen. I think this is um, something. Yeah. You know, and I I I haven't got any clear thoughts about this. The the um the need for us to have a place and to be for that place to be recognised, the need for us in terms of when we think about our identities uh, to have in a way maybe a particular landscape or it might be even a particular room that we that we in a way use as our foundation stone. Um, and the degree to which those that that foundation stone is somehow threatened by perhaps the idea that somebody else could occupy it, could steal it, could uh, annihilate it, could um, there's, there's something in there that uh, I, I, I want to work with. Yeah, in,
3: in regard to this last point, I think it's, it's quite interesting to look how throughout history art has been obsessed with sort of depicting the invisible and especially what is uncanny uh, in particular, in the body, you know, to make visible, for example, the, the sort of inside of the body, or especially, you know, the, the uncanny and sublime, which is, for example, the genital. At the moment now, in France, there is a huge exhibition of Courbet's work, and um, as many of you know, his most famous painting, *The Regime de Monde*, is about, the, you know, the depiction of female organs, um, the sexual organs, and um, many of you probably don't know that Jacques. Lacan used to own this picture. Now, this picture tried in a realist way to depict this uncanny and sublime, which, you know, female genitals are. But Lacan actually decided not to expose it in its full nudity. He he asked his friend uh, Andre Masson to paint a stylized forest-like picture, which then Lacan put on top of Courbet, and only occasionally, <laughs> as a kind of a flasher, he showed the real thing to some of the friends. Now, you might say, okay, stylized forest also alludes to the pubic hair, to that kind of uncanny, you know, the sublime and horrifying at the same time, now, we Slovenes, we usually go a little bit further in, you know, searching for the uncanny. So a friend of mine, uh, Peter Mlaker, decided to go one step further. And in a public performance, he used um, a real woman and with a micro camera went inside the vagina to really see that object, you know. <laughs> you can imagine it was an incredibly boring image. You know, just some kind of an orange skin. <laughs> now, I think that this search for, you know, the inside, uh, which is sort of anxiety provoking and sublime at the same time, is what has obsessed art uh, for a long time. And in some way, this search for, you know, the inside and also the creation of some kind of an image of what lacks an image. Uh, the very lack itself we can say also is a way we are trying to appease anxiety and quite often the anxiety on the social sphere and the body anxiety uh, tries to be appeased with the search of you know, what exactly is that what bothers us an example of how the social anxieties in regard to our social space change can be let's say our search for what is really endangering society in the 50s for example, in Americans, in America, they were trying to find an answer in Hollywood m- movies, which were depicting that the horror is always coming from the outside. So there were a lot of sort of B kind of horror movies with the titles like "They Come from the Outer Space." Now, of course, they alluded also to the communist uh, conspiracy and so on. But suddenly, in the 70s and 80s, those, some of those movies were renamed into "They Come from the Inside." And the danger suddenly became in the body. For example, the film, like, Fly, um, or another film which sort of depicted sort of like viruses coming in the body. And, of course, very soon we started talking about the danger in society coming from terrorists and from viruses, in a way, to the body itself. It appears that, you know, these were attempts to give an image to that unrepresentative. Both virus and terrorists are unseen. They multiply in a very strange way. They attack, and we cannot easily find them. I think that Anthony's work in an artistic way opens a new way to deal with this lack of the image. The lack of image with a capital I, the lack, you know, sort of itself, a representation of the lack itself, because it sort of throws the question back to us, to the viewers, and also it undermines precisely our perception of our identity, our body, as Susie was talking. It kind of opens almost sometimes depersonalization. For psychoanalysis, we know that our bodies are, you know, very fragile and very much influenced by language, very much undermined by our unconscious, very quickly changing, you know, very quickly suffering various <coughs> body illnesses and so on. And I think Anthony's work basically opens up endless questions. And precisely in a way the statues as I saw them you know, show really the, sort of the lack of the image without searching for the object behind. It's an art which is sort of able to stay with the kind of lack of lack
4: um, I want to say something about the, the, the lack um, I, I think you know, for me I, I made two sets of work that were called still feeling and they, they're both objects that want to declare in a way their redundancy so they're, they're, they're lead body cases that are, you know, have the same relationship to the body as a violin case does to a violin. They look like mummies. One is placed propped against the wall at about 45 degrees. The other is also propped against the wall, but faces the junction of the wall and the floor. And I think that they, I think of them as being traps. They're traps for our perception, but also for our empathy. So, so that they they know that they are, in a way, useless; that they are still silent, redundant things that are also spaces. And they know that they don't have what we possess: freedom of movement, consciousness, and feeling. And for me this in a way this in a way celebration of the redundancy the, the idea that, that in, in a sense the, the work is empty that it hasn't got a content involves there being a kind of circuit of reflexivity and the the fact that they're called still feeling is very important to me that their stillness calls on our feeling so that was one one point about the lack the other point was uh, that I wanted to talk about uh, also related both to what Renata said and to a degree to what Susie was saying Um, a lot of people ask me what's in it in blind light what's in it What's in the mist? What's in what's in that vapor? Because they were certain that it was not benign. They were certain that it had something in it, either a drug or that it was going to infect them with something real. Whether that was, you know, an idea about Legionnaires' disease or little monsters from outer space, you know, it didn't matter. It was like, what is in it? And the the whole play, and I'm, you know, this is, this is suggesting that I am, you know, in a way conceptually ahead of the work. I, the, all, of the, all of the things I make are experiments in, in different ways, but the whole play of the work is to collapse certainties about insideness and outsideness. You breathe this vapor. It is the context in which you live uh, for the moment that you are in the work, but it is also becomes part of your body. There's a sense in which I was very, very struck by this notion that if I go in there, I am going to be infected uh, by by this space. So everything that Renata said about, in a way, this being the the, the realm of, in you know, a in a way, some kind of psychic ectoplasm that was, you know, rather than being exuded by the body, was some, somehow going to be absorbed by it. Uh, was very, in, in my response to people's responses to the work, was, was very present.
1: So it really goes against British culture, since we're all brought up with the Weetabix adverts, where there's a, you see a figure eating Weetabix and there's a sort of warm orange glow around the body to sort of set them up for the day and to, to make bacteria and germs bounce off them then we have the exact opposite in Anthony's work where this warm glow starts to invade us and go inside it's, very, it's, it's hardly what we want for, for our comfort um, but I think it, it's fascinating um, the way in which there's been this response um, to the to the event horizon of people saying you know, well have I seen all of them as if Even though the figure seems to be fairly uniform and continuous, when you see them from a distance, it looks like, let's say, a fairly classical representation of a human body. But then the dimension of something missing immediately creeps in, and you have to start counting them to make them finite, to make them included within a set. I've now seen all of them. I can now go. It's the idea that really counting in a finite sense, being able to include them all in a set, is something that will really stop you from seeing properly. And you could make a distinction there between, in the experience of that work, a distinction between seeing and looking. The idea that we can see each figure one by one, but the look itself is something which is always moving, that there's a a kind of an appetite of the eye as the biblical expression has it and the appetite of the eye is never satisfied why? very very simple reason as Renato pointed out that there are certain aspects of human reality which aren't susceptible to any visual representation and Lacanian Psychoanalysis at least has got its own theory about how that comes to be and what those objects are and how we can ever get to know anything about them Lacan called those objects A objects which don't have any visual image. But certain things can happen, usually linked either to the experience of anxiety or the experience of the uncanny, which touch on the edges, which will make our experience of that empty place resonate, that there's something in the visual field which we can't see. And you could say that the search to count all of The sculptures in Event Horizon would be one effect of this tension between seeing and looking, that we always look for something that ultimately can't be seen.
0: Um, Any any questions um, posed to any of the speakers?
5: Just, um, my question is really about the context about anxiety because i 'm just wondering if it could be cast in a more positive light in a sense. We had the example that Sartre uses earlier on of um, standing into the abyss and being aware of your own ability to choose to jump if you wanted to into the abyss and i'm wondering uh, that's also in the same way that that generates an anxiety it also generates a, a, well the, the possibility of what it is to be human, really, which is kind of that, the freedom to choose, which is the one thing that uh, I think really does make us stand out from other, other objects. And uh, in a sense, um, uh, I mean, the example of CCTV I found very interesting because I must say I find it uh, really uncomfortable that there's, uh, we're actually the most um, surveyed city in the world and that these cameras are watching us all the time. And that's actually because I prefer not the sense of... Um, a camera staring at us all the time, or uh, another staring at us, but actually the sense of freedom. And I, I'm wondering, actually, it, the sensation. Uh, uh, I'd like to ask um, Anthony to elaborate a little bit more about the sense of euphoria that some people actually talked about uh, when they'd actually experienced blind light for a little longer and, um, uh, and got rid of that sense of facticity and maybe got a greater sense of their freedom. So I'm, I'm wondering, firstly. Um, are we just casting anxiety uh, this sensation that we call anxiety in a negative light rather than a positive one? And I, and I guess secondly, what, why do you think that is? Why are we talking in terms of this kind of negativity whereas actually the, the thing that I think allows us to have that distance from things, the distance from our bodies, and, and allows us to have that freedom to choose actually is the very thing that makes us human?
4: Yeah, I... I uh... Well, I think I said it at the beginning, I think anxiety is is our condition and it's it's an extraordinary uh, it's a sharpener of our perceptions that's what I believe so I, I don't I, I don't want to be cured of it. Um, I did once because I think as there are times i think in a in a in a younger life perhaps when you think that you shouldn't be this raw i think there are there are moments when you when when you want to be less exposed on the on the issue of um uh, you know the CCTV thing i i think that it's a curious uh, I, I think i i'm sort of halfway between you and darian's point the fact is that we I, I love riding my bike. I love uh, walking in the street. I love what happens in, in, a, in a sense with the negotiation of gazes that exist within a city, where in a sense you have again it's that image of, if you like, molecules of gas in a in a in a volume of air that we are all finding our places, not just in, in spaces that are architecturally defined, but finding our places within a context of looking and being looked at. And on one level, you could say that the CCTV is a representation of that that has been... Uh, turned into an alienation device but you could also say that actually it's just another dimension of the same thing it's a it's a structural equivalent of something similar uh, and the, uh, the 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 kind of the negative aspects of it are, are to do with control and to do with uh, in a way the, 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 the in a way the privatization of the public that that represents um, but I, the issue for me is within this, in a way, economy of gazes, and I, I, am very, my ears pricked up when 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 Darian was talking about, in a way, the need to 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 be looked at for us to to to, to for us to sense that we have in a way the space to exercise the freedom of choice that you say, say, as it quite rightly, makes us feel human. Um, I think that we... we. Now, I've totally lost my track. It's good,
1: it's
2: well.
1: Lisa, you wanted to... Can, can I just say something? Well... You could say that maybe one of the things that most people spend most of their lives trying to do is, is exactly to not feel human. And certainly we could say that you know, the image of being on the edge of an abyss and having to make the choice between life and death is an authentic human experience, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting that one of the most well-known theories of what a psychoanalysis should aim at is to bring the patient to the point where, on the edge of the abyss, they have to choose life or death, which is a kind of you know, wonderful way to define analysis. But imagine how that goes down in today's risk society and audit culture. You know, someone goes to see their GP complaining of anxiety and they refer them to a counsellor who says, well, if the work goes well, you're going to have to choose whether to live or die. So, absolutely, it's something which is you could say essential to any kind of authentic uh, analytic movement and, and the big kind of misunderstanding about what analysis aims at. In a way, let's say with neurotic problems, an analysis doesn't aim to resolve a neurotic problem. It aims to allow you just to go further along the path that the neurotic problems had set you on, which might take you to that point. That would obviously involve some anxiety, but I think if you've experienced pure anxiety, you'll know it's an absolutely terrible and unbearable thing. Um, And most of the time, we do our best to transform it into fear, where we think there's something that we don't like. So It could be, for example, the CCTV cameras, but I think there's a huge difference between... What we don't like consciously, and what we complain about consciously, what makes us feel uncomfortable consciously, and unconsciously, what we actually might aim at. Is it, Lisa? Is it Lisa's?
6: I, I wanted to ask about the public space side because um, before the end. Um, One of the things that I felt after um, having experienced Blind Light is that the people who had been through it after the event, after the experience, actually were constituted as a particular kind of public. And I wondered whether what you were doing with your sculpture generally and and with this particular kind of work was actually an attempt to constitute us as a public which had some identity with each other, which had some communality.
4: Yeah, I think that's a byproduct rather than a, a, a conscious decision. I'm, I'm very aware that, for instance, in making a work that Darian was involved in um, called The Main Field, um, where I asked well, 300 members of the public if they'd give me four hours of their lifetime to to make a mould of them and then translated that mould. Translated that mould into a into a domain, which is a sort of uh, well it's, it's a bit like a TV antennae in in human form with rather like odd um, an odd matrix of connectivity. On the one hand, you could say that that was an attempt to represent a community, but actually. They were volunteers that had come from all over the northeast, and some came from actually from London. And it wasn't, it wasn't that that became the most important uh, constitution of community. It was actually the people, the people having gone through this rite of passage of becoming naked in front of strangers, having themselves covered in cling film, then being covered in wet plaster that went hot sometimes panicking there was one lady that, that fainted three times and every time she was asked do you want to go on and she said yes I want to go on there was no way in which this was not in some way a contemporary version of a rite of passage, a, an initiation ceremony of some sort and there was a profound sense amongst those 287 in the end uh, finally were moulded and made into the mains of being part of a community of what that had made this work that had made this work possible and i found that i was in the uncomfortable position in a sense of looking after the alter egos or anyway these surrogate people that were the result of this uh, Coming together of people that maybe didn't know each other before, but now had become this domain field community. And people would ask me, you know, when they knew that the the work was going to be shown, say in Winchester, they'd say, "Am I going to Winchester? Where was I in Winchester? Was I next to Queen Victoria? Queen Victoria was already in Winchester because it was a show in the Great Hall, Um, you know, or was I next to was I next to um, you know Fred, my, my my son? Or you know, they they really wanted to know." and that w- that was intriguing to me, uh, and that's a way of unlocking this thing because I think there's a sense in which and i've certainly um you know felt that from the response of people that have been to the exhibition that that somehow the people who've been through the experience of going through Brine light feel that they belong to some form of community now what that what what that means I don't know I think it means probably means that we don't have much community in the sense of old days like Mm. village hall community. We are part of mutant communities. I mean, I don't mean that um, in terms of mutant by nature, but that they are changeable and that we uh, we associate ourselves with different interest groups. And and actually, the communities of shared experience are still valued very, very highly, (coughs) even if they are simply... The shared experience of, of a few moments spent in a in a misty room. Yeah.
2: Pink, pink. No, 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 mic. Can you shout? No, oh, there's a mic.
4: No, there's a mic. <laughs> thank you. I, I'm so
7: enjoying this talk. I, I really am. It's it's so exciting in lots of ways. Um, I'd like to pick up on something that Professor Orbach said about um, wanting to embrace you, I think she said. You're one of the figures that were on the, uh, on the Waterloo Bridge. And because, because we do know it's you, I mean, we know how you work, and we've seen television programs, and we've read about how, how you work. So in some ways, it's kind of the body which we're talking about in a rather abstract way. Is actually Anthony Gormley's body in a, in a very real way. And, and in fact, my <laughs> friends and I—we called them Antonies—the things that we could see up on, on the, the roof of the National Theatre and things like that. There's another Antony, and so on. The rest of it. And, and, and we're kind of aware also of, of the way that the public interacts with, with the Antonies in your other work, um, in um, Event—Not Her- Event Horizon. Another place. Is another place, yeah, yeah. The wonderful stories about, about how the public interacted with those figures, from you know putting little coke cans on their private parts and dressing them up in. Bikini bottoms and trying to have them banned as a danger to shipping and things like that. I mean, these kind of things, are, are, they, are, they put you in a kind of a different kind of public space, don't they? They put you in a sort of public media space, which I think is really interesting. And, and we appropriate that work, which has its genesis in your anxiety, as you've so eloquently described. We appropriate that with glee. I wonder how you feel about that. <laughs>
4: I don't know it's it's very this is very endearing on on the one hand but I you know on the other hand it isn't my problem I think the the, uh, you know I I don't regard these body forms as being me they they are I don't know what they are they're they're, they um, they're Places where I once was was, but yeah, am not, so and that they're not, you know, for 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 me, I, yeah, I, I don't feel personal about about them. Maybe I should, um, and when people get you know, uh, pass comments about the genitalia in particular, I think that's that's sort of funny. But I, I don't actually, I mean, maybe I should again. Um, I don't I don't actually identify. Um and I guess you know the, the 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 you know the question behind all of this is you know you know what what act of extreme narcissism causes me to feel that it is appropriate <laughs> to put hundreds of images of myself all over the place um and I can't answer that question <laughs> maybe
3: it's an anxiety that you don't exist <laughs> I think that's very
4: possible <laughs>
2: somebody in the front I have, but this is the most anarchic chairing I've ever seen each one of us chooses somebody to speak um, thank
6: you um, Anthony, um, first I'd like to thank you for something and secondly ask you a question um, I went to the exhibition in the summer and um, I was picked up in the room and it was just most bizarre experience worry, by
4: somebody nice
6: Yes, but that that goes on to my point. Um, the whole the whole talk has been um, about body. And had this person have picked me up, say in a bar or a club or somewhere, I would have um, really not paid him time of day because it was his time. Well, what was his? Because. Because it wasn't. Because um, the body wasn't what I would normally go for. But, you <laughs> <laughs> but, but was he drippy? Was that what it was? <laughs> but but you've you've all spoken a lot about looking and being looked at, and what attracted me, um, firstly, was the excitement in that venue, but secondly, was the voice and hearing, um, and I so I just wondered if hearing and speech. Pe- um, is of any importance within the body, to what extent, if it is, it is.
4: Well, I think you've hit upon one of the things that, in a way, made blind light or gave it a, 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 another dimension. That in, in, in a sense, the voice, the voice became disembodied as our perceptions of ourselves became disembodied. And somebody said to me afterwards, oh, now I know what it's going to be like when i 'm dead you know when i 'm in heaven and, and i don 't have a body anymore, but somehow there are all these people who are making funny noises around me that, you know and <laughs> I, 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 um, and i and 'm sort of attracted and 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 slightly repelled at the same time, and I think I, I guess it it is like ships in 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 fog or whatever that that I was aware even people who I knew very well I mean I, I felt that I knew their voices very well I hadn't had the experience of having the voice detached to that to that degree so it was a partial object sort of floating and yet very very there um, so yeah I think, I think that, um, that the, the, the sound element uh, yeah I, I think I've got to work I mean I, I think I could work With with that, Uh, yeah.
3: I really like this idea. (laughs) You might turn into organising kind of new dating spaces, but (laughs) it's quite well known that. Moments of anxiety do uh, encourage us uh, to develop kind of love feelings. You know, even sort of banal uh, self-help advice I read somewhere advises people for the first day to go on a roller coaster. Supposedly moments of anxiety somehow have like a good effect. Or, you know, I, I was told by a person that she met, you know, um, a future partner when both of them were helping some third unknown person who had a heart attack and that moment of anxiety sort of binded them. So in some way, you are obviously creating new forms of human kind of love feelings with <laughs> these interactions. No, I,
4: I was... Um, no, somebody showed me that Blind Light is, um, is now in Ukraine, in, in Kiev, and uh, I, I'm afraid to say that I can't remember the, uh, the, the website, but uh, somebody has posted... Some um, yeah, very very strong evidence of uh, extreme physical attraction uh, taking place <laughs> uh, in blind blind light. Yeah,
6: I was wondering about uh, another place as well. Is that the one on the beach? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I think you said that uh, the fields kind of. Uh, Fed into the implication of the field, fed into the work you did subsequently, and I thought about another place and how it seemed that that was in fact looking away from you when you came down onto the beach and looking towards the horizon, and actually somehow drew your gaze outward rather than back. And so I was wondering, what was the connection between those two? I mean, did, did another place come after the field? I can't remember.
4: Yeah, another place did come after the field, and I think in 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 a way it was it was an attempt to. It was it was the first work. Perhaps that dealt with that issue of the gaze, um, um, but um, turned toward... I think of the. If you think of the horizon as the sort of the final skin, the 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 sort of limit, the perceptual skin of humanness. That this is this is as far as we can see, as it were. and the idea that imagination is the thing that transcends that limitation I guess you know for me uh, field was an attempt to internalize an elemental world and make this landscape somehow conscious and somehow our the viewer's problem and and Another place, I guess, was trying to then do something that was the opposite, and maybe dealt less with personal responsibility, because I think that, in the end, the, the the kind of the the plea of these mass gazes in an in in field. Are a kind of call to conscience. We, you know, here, here are we, the, the the living, the conscious. Those have that that can act. Uh, and what is our responsibility, both to the unborn and to the spirit of the ancestors, if you like, all those that came before. But with with another place, I think that that. I guess, it's something to do with where human imagination fits within geological tele, you know, in a, in a way kind of space-time with, within a kind of cosmic uh, and so that thing of looking, looking out, in a way implying the cusp uh, of the curvature of this planet, looking out beyond that into deep space and um, and thinking about that as an alternative, you could say that what what field is trying to do is possess imaginative space, the infinite that exists, as it were, within within our power of imagination. And for me, another place uh, applies itself to the infinite that, as it were, exists in space time and the notion of an expanding universe.
2: I think this has to be our last comment. Okay, I just have a very general question uh, for Anson
3: uh, and other analysts. Have you ever encountered any good contemporary artwork which involves very little design, but uh, it's very rich in psychoanalytical uh, language and messages. Thank
4: you. Well, um, I mean, the, the, I think the obvious—I uh, mean, go go down to take Modern and and look at, at Louise Bourgeois' work. Um, you know, the f- the first piece that I saw of hers was a room. Uh, entirely made out of pendulous black well they could have been effigies of uh, you know male kind of personages or they could have been fallacies hanging from the ceiling you had to to get into the space you had to push them aside Um, they were made out of black rubber and they had they had both a kind of they were they were like dildos. They were like koshes, They were like uh, strange, both uh, concentrated body things, but also like something that might want to insert itself into bodies. And I think her work the, her, her her work is incredibly uh, rich in the relationship between the body as a, a place of intense physical and anxiety but also uh, a space like a house in which thoughts and feelings cohabit in the many chambered uh, rooms of the mind body problem and I, I, I mean I think I think that her work is is one one side i think that you know another another artist i would say um would be joseph boyce uh, and a work like Plight that is presently in the uh collection of uh musee d'art centre uh, pompidou in paris which which is a reconstruction of the space that it was originally shown which was in Anthony Doffey's gallery in Dering Street here in London which is um, a room entirely uh, lined by huge bales of felt uh, in two rows that uh, that mean that you have to duck in order to get into the space and when you're in the space there is simply a large uh, concert grand piano uh, with a blank blackboard sitting on top of it and a thermometer. And the, the combination of, in a way, this uh, evocation of a world of sound in a space that has absolutely no sound, where you feel, in a way, your own... I mean, for me, that was an acoustic equivalent of blind light... Um, it was a tribute, I think, to his own sense of impending uh, death. He, he had recently been diagnosed as having a very serious life-threatening disease, um, but somehow he put us into his position. I think that was that was an extraordinary work. And I would, the last artist that I would think I would mention would be um, Richard Serra, who increasingly, having dealt with the, the somatic. In other words, the, the viewer as uh, the subject of, um, in a way, the, the psychic displacement of, of space through these extraordinarily um, physical architectures of his work. Um, with his talk to lips is the last series of works that, that he's been involved in, the notion of a labyrinth, the notion of entering a space and not being certain about either its stability or your own within it, Uh, is absolutely extraordinary.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Just two last comments just before you go. Um, Psychoanalysis at LSE has been running for a couple of years, but um, it's kind of going to have more high profile in the next couple of months. There's a few more talks that will be coming up, um, particularly next year. Jacqueline Rose will be doing a talk for us in January. So um, look out for that. And also we do have a good website, which you should uh, do your very best to have a look at on the LSE website, Psychoanalysis at LSE. Um, One last request is for some applause for the speakers and again, thanks for coming.